Well, good morning, everybody. I come with warm greetings from Providence Reformed Baptist Church in downtown Barragub, Western Australia. And uh, it's good to be back here. I can't recall how many times I've been here, but it's good to be back. Um, I'm here with my wife and two of my children, also with a couple of my nephews. Do not let my nephews go without talking to them and my brother. If you have your Bibles, please open them. We're going to be going through them quite a bit. I'd encourage you to mark them. We're eventually going to get there after a lengthy introduction. But make sure you have your own copies of God's Word ready to, to receive of His grace through that. Before we get started, how about uh, I pray? Father, who is sufficient for these things? I remember, Lord, your servant, as he approached the pulpit all those years ago, he had to chant, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, I believe in the Holy Spirit because it is only through you, Holy Spirit, that I can utter words that will be so profound, that will transform natures, sinners into saints. Jesus, I ask that you, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, give the word, Lord, that your people here now listening will be edified, that by your spirit their hope and joy will be increased by seeing more of their God in your word. I ask, Lord, that you help me a clumsy preacher fumbling his way through your word. That's why I believe in the Holy Spirit. That you would do the work. And the people forget the preacher and see Christ. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In the mid-1940s, uh, there was a song that acted like a message of hope, of of triumph, you can say, during a time the world, was in, the world was in its second war. It spoke to the very core of the wartime crowds, desperately they're trying to, they were trying to grasp any hope in the face of so much carnage and death. By the 1950s, this song remained in the charts, popularised by the likes of Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. In the 60s, the peacemakers brought this song to the very doorstep of Anfield Stadium. There was a time when only a, only a few stadiums, really, at the time, had PA systems. And the few that had would play the top ten music hits over the speakers as their form of uh, pre-match warm-up or pre-match, pre-match entertainment. And so in 1963, the song, You Will Never Walk Alone, was number one. And for about four weeks, it bellowed across the Anfield Stadium with a crowd singing it. Well, singing along like a chant, really, before the Liverpool Football Club players ran onto the pitch. Uh, since then, that song has been engrafted into the Liverpool Football Club supporters' psyche. You will never walk alone. That's their anthem. It's uh, the universal theme of finding strength and endurance to keep on going, 
in spite of loss and impending defeat. And so it also struck a chord, not only for the football association, but the people of Liverpool itself. By the 1980s, You Will Never Walk Alone was adopted as emblematic by the Liverpool citizens because it was during a time that they themselves felt neglected by their leaders and their their social economics had deteriorated. The the communities, they felt abandoned by their, well, pretty much by everyone, including the prosperous London citizens. And so riots ensued, many were arrested, many left the city. Those who remained only had each other. And they needed to encourage themselves, Liverpool will never walk alone. And they had, well, pretty much all they had was their beloved Liverpool Football Club. Even for a short period of time, once per week, they could forget that, that, that in fact, they didn't have much at all. The little they had was recognising they were not alone in the little they had. They reminded each other, you are not walking this life alone. However, even with a little relief from the football, the football being played during the week, that, that was shattered when in 1989 a human crash at Sheffield Football Stadium injured hundreds and 96 Liverpool fans died. 5,000 people spilled into Liverpool Roman Catholic Church, 13,000 outside, and together in unison they started singing, walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams may be tossed and blown, walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone, you'll never walk alone. It's this encouragement, this this. This song, it, it's comprised of these usual suspects and these ingredients that help us to keep going on. You can see why in 2005 in the UEFA Cup Champions League, that you're not alone is so powerful. It's because you and I were created for community. God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. So we have this code in our DNA to seek others, to be looking for plurality. You know, I'm not sure you do know that the word alone was not in the English vocab until about the 1300s. And Shakespeare trying to work out how can he describe the sensation of feeling empty Without people, he actually invented the word lonely. It's not part of our DNA to be alone. We can even sometimes feel alone amongst people. You're one of those people that in groups you can even feel alone. We have that in our souls when the Holy Spirit calls us. Because some of you may be amongst a social group and you know what's right your mind tells you what's right and your heart confirms it but in the group that you're hanging around in you feel that you shouldn't be living like they're living but you're living like they're living and you're in that social group and in that group of your social milieu you still feel like the odd one out you feel alone So what happens when you say enough is enough? 
And when you leave that social group, when you stand up for God and you tell people in your group that they need to change their ways, that what they're following is idolatry, you leave. And then as you leave, you feel alone. And this sensation even happens to the spiritual people, even prophets of God's word. A little bit of context before we get stuck into it, because it's happening to Elijah right now. He feels ostracized. The scenario that we have before us, just before we get into chapter 19, Elijah has called up 450 prophets of idols of the world. He's even called the the king's prophets and priests. And he said, let's get a cow, let's get a bull, let's slaughter it. We'll, we'll see whose God can come and consume it. And so there they are, Elijah versus 450 of them and some. And he starts to taunt the people. Where's your God? Where is he? Can he even hear you? Where is his deep thought? Even in the Bible, we hear Elijah make a taunt. He says, is he in the toilet? Or maybe he's asleep. And nothing happens, even though they cut themselves and they call out to God from the morning till noon. Nothing happens because they are just so-called gods. And then Elijah drenches the bull that he has before him. He showers it with water three times and then calls out to Yahweh, his God, and God comes down in fire and consumes not only the bull and the wood and the stones of the altar that he set it upon, but everything in sight. There is the God. He kills all the 450 prophets. The worship of Baal is over or so you think, until the king and the queen who have set up the worship of Baal as the, as the national religion find out and then want to kill Elijah. Hear now the word of God. First Kings 19, and Ahab told Jezebel that all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Here's the plot. There's the scene. After Elijah has shown that Yahweh, our God, is the only true God, the powerful God, After Elijah has showed up the so-called gods of the world, the leaders of the world, the king and the queen, the ones who made the world worship Baal, want Elijah dead. They want him dead tomorrow. You see, what happens in the world is that the leaders have developed and designed and created their own god, made the masses worship that god, And by making the masses worship a God, they control the people. And Elijah has made the powers within the world look powerless. So then what do you do if you're a king? Elijah must be killed. Anyone that destroys the idols of this world needs to be eradicated. Verse 3, then he was afraid. 
And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. You see that word there, afraid, it can also mean see. In other words, it's trying to say that, he, that Elijah has saw his predicament and then he's afraid that he will die there. So then Elijah runs to save his life from dying in the hands of Jezebel, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's spooked by her. He just doesn't want to die by her hand. Because you see what happens if he dies there? What happens? Well, he's just eradicated all the false prophets because they are prophets of no gods at all. And then if he dies by the hand of Jezebel, then Yahweh, his God, well, then he mustn't be a God at all either. He's got to get out. He flees. Look at verse 13 at the end there. It says he left his servant there. For us, we're thinking in this day and age, oh, because we're all woke and all the rest of it, you know, they must be a slave. It's, pers- it's trying to tell you that was his ministry helper. In other words, what Elijah's doing, he's starting to divest himself of his ministerial role. He's got to get out. He just sees his work is done. He drops off his servant and he bolts. It's a resignation. I'm done with this. My ministry is over. So it seems like Elijah now has become despondent. His fear is that nothing is working out for him. At one stage, as I told you, Elijah was the epitome of confidence and trust in God. He's there taunting and mocking all the false prophets. God calls out Yahweh. God brings down fire and brimstone, consumes his sacrifice. He's on the top of the world. He pretty much eradicates all the false prophets, but now he's running away, like he's gone too far. Elijah runs from the consequences to the shutting down of idols. Have you ever had that feeling? You ever got in a conversation with someone in the world and you shut down their idols? But they still hate Yahweh, our God, the Lord. So you shut down their idols, there's nothing left. They hate Yahweh and you're the representative and you you then are the receiver of all their ire. You lay bare and expose the world to the stupidities, what Elijah did of the false idols. What now? Well, you get rid of the guy that's talking about God, don't you? And they despise him. I think we need to just pause here for a moment and think about the way that we interact with the world. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you're not always going to be thanked when we expose the foolishness of idols to the world. Don't romanticise Christianity. When you go out into this world, especially this woke world, you are not going to be thanked for knocking down some idols. You need to get ready because you will want to be thick-skinned when their ire turns back at you and the world tries to eradicate you for getting rid of their idols. Especially when the kings of this world have got you to believe in their idol and you shut down that idol, even the leaders of this world will come after you like they did Elijah. So Elijah is to be eliminated. 
Elijah escapes. And look at his destination. He's headed somewhere in particular, Beersheba in Judah. However, notice that he's going back to God's land, but it's not enough just to go to the place of God. He needs to go deeper. He needs to penetrate into God's territory, away from the certain dead. Well, death of the hand of Jezebel, see that in verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey. He's already in Bathsheba, but he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. You know, sometimes we're going to be in so much need of God. You're going to run to God's place. You're going to need God, but just entering the territory of God, it's just not going to be enough. You know, just going to his place, coming here on a Sunday, it's just not enough. You're going to need to bury yourself deep in him, in his ways. And when you go that deep, when you need him that deep, there aren't too many people around there. Elijah has gone there and now he's alone. No one with him, under a tree, lonely in a desert, a wanted man. <clears throat> and think about it. What for? What for? What's all this for? Elijah is the only one that stood up to all these false prophets and for his services, death. For dropping the mic on their beliefs. For putting to death the proponents of idols. You see, it seems like his reward is to die for his troubles, be killed for shutting down the worship of false gods. I think we do well, again, to treat this as, a, as, as, as the cost for, for following Yahweh. I think Jesus even told us, he said, have you weighed the cost? You know, this stuff does not tickle. If it tickles... You're not in the world with Jesus. This stuff hurts. Our position in this life is not always going to be received like we have saved people's souls. The world is not going to give us prizes for our efforts. There will be no trophy. There's not going to be any riches and fame. You may, you may get a pat on the back by us here, this side of glory, there's hardship and we must be prepared for it we must however show the foolishness of idols but without romanticizing the consequences and you know when you have that and when you when you get involved in in the world and trying to bring christ to people god the almighty yahweh to them while they love the world you will be ostracized and you will be set aside, and you will feel alone, and that can be heartbreaking. In fact, to be treated as an enemy for bringing God to our own social circle and seeing no change like Elijah can in fact break us. Look at Elijah, still in verse 4, and he asked that he might die. It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than, than my father's. Can you hear his utter sense of finality? You know, have you ever done that before? Look, I've been doing this quite a long time now, and I know that amongst us there's going to be a few of you that have fought once before, or maybe more than once, but that you just want to kill yourself. 
If you're a little bit more holier than that, you're going to say, God, kill me. That's what he's asking for. He has these suicidal tendencies. Lord, just finish it now because everything I touch, everything I do, I've gone to the world, I've preached your gospel, I've, I've prayed for everybody to come to you and nothing has changed. I've knocked down idols and here I am by myself in the wilderness under a broom tree. What am I doing? Just end it now. You've got to understand the context of the flow to understand the fear. Is he really scared of Jezebel that she's going to kill him? Well, he does want to die. You see, it's not that he fears her. He's okay to die. He just doesn't want to die by her hand. This is a broken man. I don't know, not too many people nodding their head here. So it looks like Elijah and myself are the only ones that have ever felt like this. Man, when you bleed for people, when you actually suffer for them, this is what it looks like. He's broken. He may know fear, but it's not fear that makes him suicidal. He's done all he can, you see. Nothing's happened, nothing's changed. It's just the same. And rather than actually turning, they've actually got worse. Now they want to kill him specifically. Now they're after him. He's spent. You kill me, God. But don't, don't let the death, my death, be seen as a victory for them. I don't know. Have you ever prayed for your, your land, your people, your relatives, your family, maybe your, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, and, and just nothing happens. You've done everything. The more I, I expose their idols says Elijah they hate me all the more he's useless kill me you ever noticed this is the part that I cannot cohere with the, with the world have you noticed how Elijah and every single prophet of the Old Testament and the final prophet in Jesus Christ never had a mega church never had a mega church no fans, no mega church, no choir, no money, no big house, no flash car, no million followers on Twitter. No, Elijah's not even an influencer. Elijah's on the run and he's in the desert alone. And we today, even Christians, want to be influencers. You want to have thousands and thousands and millions of followers. But no one, find me, find me the person. Find me the person in God's word writ that has a mega church. This hurts. You know why? Because the evil powers have the tentacles on the people of the world and you're in there going, get rid of those tentacles. They're going to go, yeah, sure, no problem. There's a spiritual battle happening here and he's broken. So you ask God to kill him. So you ask yourself, what's God going to do? What does Yahweh do? What, is he, what's the, what type of God is he? Is he going to do it? Is he going to kill him? Does he even listen? Is he like Baal? What he thought will bring success brings death. Rather than weaken them, it strengthens them. And rather than the servant of God becoming stronger, he's actually weaker. That's our life. Verse 5, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Now here comes the Lord. 
by the means of another servant, another being. We call them angels. The Bible says they're angels. Look at the first response that you see there. God touches him. God, what, do, you, do you ever stop and think, you know, I, I talk to many people, hey, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? Oh, man, are you the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to do this, this, this. You know what I'm going to do? The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to be in the back of the stadium. Jesus is going to be on the platform. Eventually, after a million, million years, I walk up. I just want him to touch me. You know, the being that says, let there be light, you know, and then just, just, just touch me. Have you ever been away not seeing your relatives for a long time, your loved ones, you, you've gone away, you've come back and you've seen them again? You know, a wave is not enough. You need touch. What would it feel like for an angel to touch him? He is broken and Yahweh comes and touches him. Signature Yahweh. Love. The second response, look at that. Words of encouragement, arise and eat. Oh, so our heavenly father through his servants, he's so different to me. That's my son, he's right there. I say, I say, you're a useless prophet, aren't you? Like, come on, I gave you everything. God says, get up, eat, arise. The third response, can you see? It's an indirect response. What did he ask for? What's God doing? If an angel will touch him and lift him up and feed him, God isn't going to kill him. God ignores his suicidal request. I know times are going to, in our lives are going to get tough. You're going to want to, you're going to want it to all end. And God is going to say no. You know why? Because we think that we have this, this understanding of where we are in temporal space and time. And yet God, you know, is so outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So life can be so bad right now and you want it to end. And God goes, yeah, but there's more stuff to go. You just can't see it yet. And so he thinks he's alone and we think we're alone. But God sees what he's going to accomplish through Elijah. I don't know if you know this either, but do you know there's only two people in the Bible that have never died? Do you know that? One of them was Enoch. And the other one is Elijah. There's going to come a time, you know, that Elijah, he will be with God. But the way that he's going to be carried up is with a legion of angels, all in chariots of fire. Chariots of fire, we know that, don't we? we may, even when you watch the movie, it's from here, you know, from Elijah. The world copycats us. But Elijah will be taken up by the swirling whirlwind of chariots of fire into heaven. There's something more coming. He just can't see it just yet. He's contemplating suicide, but the Lord sees beyond the despair of man. And yet, God, look at that. Do you see that? Those of you like me that think that way, that you have your dark days, that oh, that black dog's on your back and you're suicidal. God uses suicidal people. God fortifies the frail. When your faith fails, you've got to be like Elijah. You need to get deep in the Lord. Get serious. Go deep into the wilderness of his place. He will never let the righteous fall. He will sustain you. When you cannot keep going on, God will keep you going on. 
Verse 6, and he looked and behold there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again. I don't know what your favourite food is, but you haven't lived until you have tasted Argentinian alfajores or, or, or maybe traditional milanesas you know, or I don't know, maybe messina is your thing with dulce de leche messina salivate over blueberry New York cheesecake. I don't know what it is that you like. But what do you think a cake baked by an angel would taste like? Did Elijah taste it and go, mmm, tastes like heaven? Correct. And what jar? Where did this jar come from? What's going on here? Did did the angel pour Elijah some heavenly water? He's in the wilderness. I love looking at God's word like that. It's so remarkable. You know, I have heard many people say that when you read this section of the Bible, God's providing for his basic needs. Yeah, sure he is. But God does feed him by an angel, a messenger, a messenger of God. God feeds Elijah through the angel. Elijah won't be killed. He'll be kept. Elijah won't fall into a heap, but shall hope once again. And Elijah will be lifted up by the food from God. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him. Again, stop touching me, it's too much. And arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. The angel comes back a second time. This time we see the angel's title includes God's name. Did you catch it? The angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh. For those of you who talk to Jehovah's Witness, the angel of Jehovah. It's the gentle prodding of God again. Again, the journey is too great for you, Elijah. Do you chuckle at God sometimes? Has not God seen his journey so far? He wants to die and God says, yes, eat because we've got a little bit further to go. You're also, all of you, if you want to get involved in the world and get in, really involved and you know how you know you want to get really involved in the world? Here's, here's something you can do. The next time you're, you're around your bunch of friends that most of them are unbelievers, just tell them that you're a follower of Jesus. See how that goes for you. Double dare you. And then you're going to think you can't go on because you will feel alone. But you can't keep going on your own fuel, you see. You need the tender care of God and him to feed you. Paul, Paul was the same. Suffered Christ's afflictions. He says in Colossians 1.29, hear how he says it. I'm not sure if you ever picked this up. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Have you got that energy? Are we allowed to speak like that as Baptists? I'm reformed. I'm, I'm, but his energy powerfully works within me. You ever speak like that in my group, my social circle? Not really. Spirit, energy, powerfully in me. That's how God sustains Elijah. Feeds him, restores him, saves him from death. But he's got more to go. Verse 8, and he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that 40 days and 40 nights, the horror of the Mount of God. He rises like he's been given a new life. When you read the Bible, do not overlook these 40 days and 40 nights. They're all replete. They're everywhere. 
It's a flashback to Moses, who spent 40 days and 40 nights on that same mountain. What's Elijah doing? He's going back to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, which is where Moses saw God, because Elijah wants to see God like Moses saw God. And here we are. The last time we're aware that Moses saw God, the preamble was he saw a burning bush. And the next one, God put Moses in a cleft of a rock and displayed his glory. And the suicidal Elijah wants the same. He wants to speak to God. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I know many people look at this and they go, oh, Elijah, what are you doing there? But do you think God doesn't know? Oh, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's intimate. It's an invitation for self-reflection. To answer this question of what are you doing here, it forces us to recount our steps until here. To examine our life, you see. I don't think God is rebuking Elijah, but sometimes our introspection, when we are realizing our self-awareness, can have that effect. However, God is using the effect of that to redirect him. He's asking him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And now I ask you right now, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? How did you get here? What are you doing here, Christian? And Elijah responds, I'm jealous for you, verse 10, but I'm alone. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away see where he's at I'm the only one Lord your people have killed the prophets he's the only one left I am the only prophet left I'm the last one standing I'm alone he's alone but is he though? is he? He's told to stand outside, verse 11. And he said, the Lord, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. An echo of Moses. God passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So God is showing his power in the the wind, the earth, and the fire. Elijah sees God manifest his power like he did with Moses at the same time of giving the Ten Commandments where where the heavens spewed fire and the smoke rose up like a kiln. The mountain trembled and God answered Moses in the sound of thunder. Do you remember that? But God here... After the fire, the sound of a whisper. It's like a reversal. In other words, Elijah, you came here like Moses to this mountain to look for me, to, to hear from me, to want to see my power. You want the wind, you want the earthquake. 
You want the fire. You want the miracles. You want the show. You want the tongues. You want the healings. You want the gifts. You want the miracles. You want the fireworks, the smoke machine. But I'm not in that. I'm just here with you. You think you're alone? But you shall never walk alone. You think you're alone because you can't see the the laser show. Because you should be about 500 by now and you're only this. Because life is difficult. Because you haven't got hundreds of thousands of followers. Because of your ministries without confidence. Because there is no change in your family. Because you, you, you are pursued. Because of that you think you're alone. But I'm here. And Elijah gets it. He gets it now. Verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Again. See how finally Elijah actually leaves the cave? He goes to meet his God. And God is relentless with his demand for our self-evaluation, our self-reflection. What are you doing here? Again, he asks him. What's your purpose? What are you doing here, Wally? What are you doing here, Christian? What are you doing here? What is the goal of your life? What are you doing here? What are, you, uh, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Examine your life. What are you doing here? Verse 14, and Elijah responds the same way. I've been very jealous for the Lord. The same way, the same way. And he says, I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He's answering the same way because there's no change in them and there's yet to be change in him. I'm alone. I'm lonely amongst the rebellious people. But that's because Elijah doesn't see what God sees. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Assyria. Go back and let's anoint a new king. Verse 16, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king of Israel. And Elijah, Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. You think you're the only one? We've got work to be done. But you need to rest first. And you need to be fed by me. And then you need to get off your self-pity party. Get up. You are not alone. I'm here. You want the spectacular, the ostentatious, the fireworks, the laser show. You want all these stuff going on. And I'm here in the low whisper with you. That's enough. Now go. Oh, and Elijah, again, again, you're not alone. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, there are 7,000 yet to be converted. Get up, let's go. You just can't see it at the moment. 
verse 19, so he departed from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Everyone goes, what does that mean? There's a guy who's a farmer, and he's on oaks, and he's plowing. And it shows you the unspectacular nature of the calling of God. Hey, you, farmer guy, on the ox. Okay? It's just minding his own business, plowing the land. But it tells Elijah, you are not alone. He's your successor. Verse 20, left the oxen, that's Elijah. And then after Elijah said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back for what have I done, for what have I done to you? In other words, really? But go on. Verse 21, and he returned from following him, took the yoke of the oxen, sacrificed them, bore the flesh with the yokes of the oxen, gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he rose and, after, and went after Elijah and assisted him, and everyone goes in the modern age of 2023 down here in Liverpool going, well, what does that mean? Like how, don't you see? He's a farmer on ox. Along comes, Elijah says, stop doing it. How do I show everybody I've got a new life now as a prophet? When I, from my life as a farmer, I thought, I'm going to just consume it all, burn it. And then I'm going to go and people will go, he was a farmer. Now Elisha is a prophet. Oh, do you see it? It's an inclusio. Elijah let his servant go to show that he's no longer in the ministry. And now Elisha burns what he used to use to begin and continue the ministry. I have about four hours to go on my sermon. But let me give it to you straight. There is a man, a prophet, who goes out to rescue a people from the bondage of false idols. He rescues them, and rather than love him, they want to kill him. So he runs, and he feels alone. But God tells him, you're not alone, but there's more to come. It is a shadow of a man that was to come and that has come who for 40 days and 40 nights fasted in the temptation to make him lose but at the end of 40 days and 40 nights this man was so drought and so fraught with tiredness he needed to be administered by angels and then this man during his ministry that began after that temptation He went out, he fed thousands upon thousands, trying to rescue them from the idolatry of this world. And in John 6.66, we read, after this, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer walked with Jesus. So much so was his influence and his truth of shutting down false idols that the kings of the world wanted to kill him. Rather than run away this Jesus, 
voluntarily gave himself up. And on a cross, he was alone. But rather like, unlike Elijah, rather than God saying he's there like Elijah, God was not to be heard when Jesus was on the cross. Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is through that cross then that Jesus dies alone and then he's buried. But three days later he's resurrected. It is through that work of Jesus Christ that then he may lead many sons to glory. Jesus said something very interesting for us. He said that if we were to follow him, we must take up our cross daily, coupled with denying the self and follow him. Elijah felt like he was alone and Jesus Christ was alone. He was alone so that then we forever will never be alone. So allow me to ask for the last time today, what are you doing here, Christian? What are you doing here? You may be facing adversity, but remember this, in Christ, we shall never walk alone. Allow me to pray. My Lord Jesus, I ask that your great name will be proclaimed by the people that sit here in my earshot and it will be by your power that you would feed him, feed them and me your word, yourself that we may know the purpose of what we are doing in this very earth and also knowing that with you we never walk alone. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Please stand and join us.